As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and it's just the two of us, uh, and we're going to do just fine. I have a good feeling because this is stuff you should know. We've been at it for decades now. <laughs> Not decades. Well, in different decades. Right. That's that's how people get you. Yeah. They say stuff like that. That's right. Uh, big COA for this one. Uh, it is about a very gruesome tragedy um, that we're going to detail, and we're going to uh, talk about a little bit of the gruesome stuff, but not get too, you know, uh, detailed because it was a terrible tragedy. But we just want to alert listeners, uh, especially our younger listeners, that some of this stuff is pretty terrible. Uh, that is the events uh, of the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri in 1981. Yeah. Um, and that was just one year after that hotel opened, right? That's right. Uh, this is the Hyatt Regency, a 45-story, 700-room hotel that opened in July of 1980. Uh, it was a part of a big suite, uh, a complex called the... Uh, Crown Center? Huh? Yeah, the Crown Center Complex. Right. And it had retail, had housing, all kinds of stuff owned by the Hallmark Corporation. That's where the Crown came from. Because remember, if you turn a Hallmark card over, sometimes it says Crown. Well, then their logo is a Crown. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> But this hotel, Chuck, if you go back and look at pictures of it pre-disaster, it was magnificent. Like, if you looked up, you would see that there was a, a high a, a hall, a walkway right over your head. And that was actually one of three that were kind of like the signature design of this atrium at the Hyatt Regency, Kansas City. That's right. Uh, and like we said, this thing had been open for about a year when the, uh, the collapse tragedy occurred. Uh, during one of their, they were hosting these weekend tea dances, uh, which apparently were very popular in town. It was sort of an an antiquated old school thing that they did, but uh, the people of Kansas City ate it up, and they were just growing bigger and bigger with every weekend. Uh, and on this particular weekend, uh, they had, you know, as they did, they had a live band playing. And I saw anywhere from, I saw a thousand people in different places. This is one of those things where like, Every time you see a different video, you'll get different numbers and mm -hmm. different things. And these can be a little frustrating sometimes, but at least a thousand. Yeah. And maybe as many as 2,000 people there uh, hanging out, partying, and dancing in the lobby. Yeah. I mean, if you see um, 
there's there's footage of it because I think uh, one of the local TV stations was doing a human interest piece on how popular this this dance had become, this Friday night dance, and that place was packed with people, not just in the atrium on the floor, but also up at the terrace restaurant and on those three walkways that span the entire uh, length of the atrium from one side to another on the second, third, and fourth floors. So there was a ton of people. And the the number I most commonly saw was 1,500. So I guess everybody else split the difference. Yeah. So it's crowded. It's packed full of people. Uh, A little after 7 o'clock, the band comes back from a break to play their final big number of the dance contest. And uh, you know, when you look at um, interviews with people from the time, they all describe hearing uh, three loud popping noises or snapping noises. Um, they sounded like, you know, some people said they sounded like gunshots going off. And in very quick succession, uh, floors, the walkways of on floors four and two collapsed fully. These cement, and we're going to go over, you know, why this happened and what these are all were made of, but, you know, steel and concrete. And it was super heavy and collapsed on hundreds and hundreds of people below. Yes. Yeah, so these, each one, I think, w- weighed something like 32 tons. Each of these walkways did. And w- one was above the number, f- the fourth story walkway was directly above the second story walkway, so much so that the second story walkway was dangling from the fourth story walkway. So when the fourth story walkway gave, it came down, the second story hit the ground first, the fourth story walkway hit the the second floor. So there was like a a stratum or a strata of of layers of destruction of debris and people were pinchucked beneath two 32-ton walkways that were in four segments. So each segment was at 32 tons, but it was enough to really do a lot of damage, like immediately. Like apparently it happened in the blink of an eye, basically. And I mean, like it's really tough to get across like how much of a tragedy this was. Like there were couples dancing that were killed simultaneously by this stuff. So that means that there were people in Kansas City who lost both parents all at once or lost one parent. We lost a friend like like a lot of people were were impacted by this tragedy and it just happened in just the blink of an eye. Yeah, I mean, it, it ripped from the ceiling and they just collapsed. The the eyewitness accounts, um, if you see any of the, the either contemporaneous footage or they've done interviews with people since and like follow up documentaries and such. It's just awful. Um, everyone talked about how uh, in like the. Some people said up to like five seconds afterward, mm-hmm. it was just complete silence. Mm-hmm. Like obviously the uh, every the band had stopped, and there was just a brief moment of nothingness, and then all of a sudden screaming, wailing, people in some of the most horrible pain and um, circumstances that you can imagine. Which again, we're going to get to a little bit, but. It's uh, if you really want to dive into the down the rabbit hole of what all happened to these folks, you can you can look this stuff up online. Yeah, there's there's actually a lot of really well written um, articles on it from can- out of Kansas City, um, but the the in that that chaos that ensued almost immediately, there were a lot of people pinned underneath. There were people who'd been injured by debris, uh, and then there were other people who were nearby and were just dazed um, and weren't really injured at all, but just couldn't believe what they'd just seen. And then there was a small kind of cadre of people among the witnesses 
who just kind of immediately sprang into action. And when you see footage of the immediate aftermath, you see men in suits and women in dresses, like trying to pick through the debris and get people out of there as fast as they can. And all of this just started even before the fire department and police department showed up to, to start to take charge of things. People just immediately, some people had an impulse to, to go in there and help. Yeah, it was. Uh, and, you know, we should mention that the uh, the fire department, the cops, everyone got there really, really fast. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they were also close to um, hospitals. I think there were three. Uh, it was called Hospital Hill. Uh, three hospitals that were really nearby that started taking people on. Um, they were working, uh, you know, basically into the night and into the next morning uh, with a final uh, death toll of 114 people. Mm-hmm. Perished and more than two hundred uh, were injured, and I think they they still listed as the the in American history at least the largest structural disaster in history. That it was until September eleventh the largest in American history, and then it became the largest accidental structural disaster right, in well, American sure. history. Um, so yeah, hundred and fourteen people dead, a hundred and eleven like basically dead on the scene. Three more people who were gravely injured, died later on from their injuries. Um, and the the people who survived, there were incredibly survivors who were pinned under these, these walkways, these slabs of concrete. But the, they were in terrible shape. And there was a man named Mark Williams who was a survivor. And he's, if you um, read about this or watch videos on it, he's very prominent. He's a very outspoken type of guy. And he talked a lot about being rescued. He was the last person rescued all the way at 4.30 a.m. But he was at the bar that was directly beneath the walkways and realized what was happening and started to run. And those walkways fell so fast that apparently he didn't even get his first stride, but his legs were astride. And so he was smushed down into a split. And that's where he stayed until 4.30 a.m. And this happened at like 7 p.m., and he survived. He managed to live. And there were other stories like that, too. A little 11-year-old boy who was pulled out of the rubble. Um, a few people, I think six or seven or something like that, were did manage to survive. But the vast majority of people who were on or under the walkways when they collapsed died. Yeah, there was... Um there were situations where they had to uh, amputate arms and legs on the spot just to get people out of there and give them a chance at living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did this kind of thing with chainsaws. Um, there was one, and this is really gruesome, but there was one horrific story of a guy that was, you know, trying to pull someone out yeah. and the guy's arm just comes off and he's holding it. And uh, the officer on charge said the guy just set it down and left. Um, and, you know, we'll get to the, the PTSD that obviously followed. But a lot of these uh, first responders, uh, you know, th- there were some suicides later on. Uh, there was alcoholism and drug use and lives in shambles because they didn't have stuff like, you know, they went to work the next day. They weren't like, all right, we need to get you into counseling mm-hmm. quick like and start taking care of you. And that's one of the big changes that came out of this was. PTSD therapy for emergency responders. Yeah, and it had a, a, an impact on the entire city. I mean, people who weren't there, people who, who didn't even know people who were there were still impacted for years and years. It just had a, it just left a blotch on the city. It was just such a horrible tragedy. 
Um, and there were a couple of other stories that stuck out to me of the, the people who died. One that did was um, a, uh, a woman named Lynn Vander Hayden, who's yeah. 22. And she was just happened to be walking through the lobby on her way to the, the, ro- the revolving restaurant on the, the top of the, the hotel. She was just passing through and she died. And then another one that stood out was a man named Oscar Grimm, who pushed his wife Joan out of the way. And she lived and he died, but he managed to, to act that quickly um, that he, he was able to save his wife's life. His last act on earth was to save his wife's life, which I think is remarkable. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so they, they turn the, you know, it basically becomes a, a war zone immediately. Um, they, you know, turn one room into a triage center. They turn one room into a temporary morgue. They're trying to get people out of there and into the parking lot. Uh, it is summertime, so it's still daylight during the initial rescue efforts, but uh, as darkness fell, uh, the power had been blown, so then it becomes dark uh, overnight when they're still, you know, sort of digging through there, either trying to get um, dead bodies out or trying to get people out that are still just wailing in the darkness. And not only that, but uh, the sprinkler system had torn apart and a water pipe burst and for about 50 minutes, this, you know, parts of this room were filling up with water. And, you know, let's say you're trapped in a, a very small confined space that's filling up with water. There were survivors that said they thought then they were going to drown all of a sudden. I didn't see that anyone definitively did drown, but the people on the bottom of that pile were definitely in danger of it for sure. Um, it took 45 minutes, I think, to finally turn the water off. 48. 48. And then, uh, but there was a, a quick thinking fire chief. I don't know if it was a deputy chief. I saw, I didn't get their name and there were a bunch of deputy chiefs there. But um, they were like, we need to bulldoze these front doors because they're acting as a dam. So they bulldozed the doors and let the water out and kind of saved the day. Um, but that was, I mean, imagine being pinned beneath this rubble and now you you might accidentally drown. Like what a day. Yeah, it was uh it was a tragedy that um, still looms large, and maybe we should take a break and uh, talk about what happened and why this happened right after this. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Chuck, there were so many people, um, and very fortunately, like you said, they were near a few hospitals, but they ended up requiring 17 emergency rooms for this. Yeah, they um, construction companies came in and were donating forklifts. They were donating cranes. Uh, people were donating their own personal equipment. Mm-hmm. Everybody basically uh, came and chipped in. Uh, you mentioned those front doors being knocked down. They they ended up knocking holes through the entire front of the hotel. Yeah. Uh, not holes, like there was no front of the hotel because they had to get a crane in there eventually mm-hmm. because all the equipment that they were trying to get, forklifts, I mean, you name it, to try and lift these concrete slabs, it was just pushing everything out of the way. So they ended up having to bring in, like, you know, the most heavy-duty construction crane you can imagine Mm -hmm. to pull these things up eventually. So uh, I saw, Chuck, that, like, there were all these amazing acts of of people of generosity, of heroism, and, and, and just people coming together. And I also saw from some of the people who were involved that within hours of the tragedy, um, the mood did like a 180 and people started to want to know what what happened, what had gone wrong and who was to blame, because it was very clearly something had gone terribly wrong with the structure of the skywalks. And people wanted to know why, because, again, this was it's just such a catastrophic loss of life. It was almost incomprehensible, but it started to settle in that it had happened and that somebody somewhere was to blame and people wanted to know. Yeah. So what they eventually figured out, and this was after uh, some pretty amazing investigation uh, by the National uh, National Bureau of Standards, which is now the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um, they were I mean, they did they x-rayed material. They did metallurgical examinations of steel. They did 
um, you know, physics tests. Uh, they did everything you could imagine to figure out uh, what went wrong. And what they landed on, it turns out, they didn't really need to do any of those tests. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a design change that was, uh, as it turns out, basically rubber stamped. Uh, the original design of these walkways that were, again, two and four were suspended above each other, and floor number three, which didn't collapse, was just offset from that one, kind of over the center of the atrium. Right. Uh, but the original design called for these skywalks to be held together with one, you know, group of continuous steel rods that went through both floors and all the sets of these hollow beams threaded with nuts. Uh, but this was like you know, 45 feet or so of threaded rod. And they said, you know what? Threading wears out. And if you thread a nut 45 feet, that's a long way. And eventually, by the time you get to where you want to go, that thing's not going to be as strong as it needs to be. So they changed the design uh, to basically hang the second floor from the, first, the fourth floor using two sets of rods instead of one continuous set, which basically uh, doubled the weight of what everything was hanging on on floor four. Uh, there's a great YouTube video. Uh, I believe the guy is English. His name is Tom Scott, but he got a uh, an engineer, this guy named Grady from Practical Engineers, who put it like this. Imagine a long rope that two friends are hanging on. One person's hanging above the other. That's fine. Then imagine that same rope with the same two people hanging, but in this case, the second person is hanging from the other person's ankles. So the total weight is the same, but the the stress on that first person, or in this case, that first top fourth floor is different. Yeah, I saw a guy named Bill Quip, Quatman who, say, who said flagpole instead of rope. Um, so I think that kind of demonstrates, Chuck, that because it's such an easy analogy that you could have looked at these designs, and I mean you specifically and me, and been like, are you sure this is the same as what you guys originally had, like as far as the math goes? It was I wouldn't have. So, it was so radically different. Um, it, but at the same time, it seemed like, uh, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Of course, that's what you're going to do. Because not only are those could those threads wear out, how, like how, you're going to have to put the entire skywalk on – each of those six threads, those six um, hanging rods, threaded hanging rods, like you're going to have to slide them down. And of course, you're going to damage some of those threads and then they're totally useless. You won't be able to screw those nuts all the way up to the bottom of the skywalk any longer. So what are you going to do? You just cut it in half. It makes total sense. It's still the same general design. The two skywalks are hanging from the ceiling. But like you said, now the second floor skywalk is hanging from the fourth floor skywalk. And that was a that was a catastrophic mistake um, because the skywalks themselves were in no way, shape or form designed to hold up their own weight. And they were attached on either end to basically portals that led to the hallways that continued on the fourth, second and third floor on either side. Those connections to those portals were in no way, shape or form designed to hold the walkway up. So. I think I said they span the entire length of the atrium, which is 120 feet. So these were 120 feet long skywalks. And they had brass um, uh, handrails at waist high. And then between that and the skywalk was glass. It was super cool looking, super late 70s, early 80s design, right? They were, they were attached to the end hallways on either side. 
So they were basically like the hallways were just suddenly stripped of everything around them except for the part you walked on. That, and that's what crossed to the atrium. It's pretty cool. Um, and they were attached to the, the hallways that continued on either side through portals. And the, um, the actual span itself was held aloft by three box beams that were perpendicular to the length of the, the walkways themselves, right? So you had basically it looked like a, a kid's swing but three of them, and then you had the walkway spanning those three things. Does that make sense? I think so. So the walkway was held up by those three box beams that were held aloft each by two ro- hanging rods. And it just it just couldn't do it. Um, what's surprising to me is that it lasted a full year after it opened, you know? Yeah, I mean— I guess we could go over the uh, the load bearing here. That seems to be a pretty good place for it. Uh, the NBS, like I said, who was doing the investigating, um, they, you know, they did testing. They built their own version of this stuff. And they went and found that the load bearing capacity uh, for just uh, one individual connection was uh, 81 kilonewtons which I've never heard of before. To clear things up, Chuck, a kilonewton is equal to one kilogram meter per second squared. So, I'm sure that clears it up for everybody. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's just the, you know, that's called the dead load. That's the weight of the structure itself. Um, if you have people on it, obviously it's going to be a lot different. And there were a lot of people on this. They were up there having a good time and dancing and partying. Um, they said that would add another 11 uh, kilonewtons. So eventually you get to a total, you know, by the time it collapsed, a total weight of 95 kilonewtons, which was 14 more than it was even supposed to hold to begin with. Right. That's just like, that's how it was in reality. The The thing that makes it even worse to me is that that doesn't meet code at all. Like code is that you would have to basically double that amount of um, load bearing capacity to have passed inspection. And yet these things passed inspection. Oh, at the time it was double? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't a change. Like this thing passed inspection um, despite the code requiring it to be able to support 181 kilonewtons. Like you said, they were able to support 81 kilonewtons. So it was a, a, a terrible design. And the only explanation was that the actual explanation that when they changed that design, from the singular rods, which is two guys hanging separately on a fire pole or a rope rather than hanging on their ankles. Um, when they changed it, no one did the calculations to see if it would hold up. And that is exactly what happened. Yeah, they, you know, they did, of course, when something like this happens, you're going to inspect like the welding, you're going to inspect the steel. I know they subpoenaed uh, the actual steel manufacturer and and the the welding company and the GC and like basically everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they found was th- this thing basically like the welds would eventually rip. They had these two sort of C bracket beams that they welded together to form one hollow squared beam. Uh, and the rods ran through the middle of these and those, those did split and the bolts basically pulled. You can, you can see pictures where it just pulled right up through the center of them. Uh, but they said that this, this would have happened anyway, even if it was like a solid steel beam and not too welded together. It wasn't because the welds. It wasn't because uh, of anything, basically, other than the fact that this design change made it almost inevitable. 
So this design change was done by the steel fabricator on what are called shop drawings. And shop drawings are basically like a a close-up explanation of exactly how you're supposed to manufacture what the engineer or the architect wants, right? And the, the steel fabricator says that they called the architect in charge, a guy named Daniel Duncan, and got his approval over the phone to change the rods from one single rod to two rods split in half. And that was it. Um, there was no, no one on the steel fabricator side did the calculations, and yet they stamped their approval on it. Dan Duncan didn't do the calculations, and yet he stamped his approval on it. And then a guy named Jack Gillum, who was the art, the engineer of record who Dan Duncan worked for and was in charge of this project, he didn't do the calculations, and he stamped a seal of approval on that change as well. So it made it through. It made it through the process that it's supposed to go through. And when you're sitting there building this, or when you're sitting there putting all this together and you're looking at that shop drawing and it's got all three stamps that it's supposed to have, you're pretty sure that that's, it's the way it's supposed to be. People don't stop and question that kind of thing, or at least they didn't during this construction phase. Yeah. I think that's important to remember because I think people stop all the time and say things aren't safe and that we should revisit stuff. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't hear. Uh, there was even apparently, uh, you know, in interviews after the fact there were, uh, crew from the build site that were saying like they saw these beams sort of stressing and bending a little bit when they were putting this thing together. Um, there was a collapse earlier, uh, a huge section of the roof collapsed on this building in the middle of the night uh, while they were building it. So this was a project that uh, already had sort of one near tragedy um, averted on its hands and it was just sort of pushed through and um, no one spoke up. And of course, I'm not blaming the the builder who saw the steel flex, but like, you know, everyone should be able to stand up and say, um, and not just assume that someone else knows what they're doing when it comes to a project like this. Yeah, I think that's essential. And I think that this, this disaster actually kind of helped change that too. That was one of the things that did change. So I'd say, Chuck, we take a break and come back and talk about some of the fallout from this. All right. Let's do it. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So before we broke, you mentioned a guy named Jack Gillum, who was the uh, engineer in charge of the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gillum would go on to be a public speaker. Um, he later went on to say, you know, the problem, this is a quote, uh, was so obvious that a first-year engineering student uh, could have figured it out. Um, too little, too late, obviously. Uh, there was a tribunal formed by the Missouri Board of Professional Engineers uh, in 1984 and the years following that ruled that um, they were grossly negligent. Uh, the phone approval was obviously grossly negligent. And there was, quote, a conscious indifference uh, to professional duty. So uh, how does that happen? Um, it was a time where there was uh, a lot of production and construction being rushed through, not, not just there, but all over the place. Uh, the late 70s and the early 80s, um, it just seems like there were a lot of fast-track projects. There wasn't as much oversight. Uh, there weren't as many uh, rules in place. And there was a, a lot of stuff. Um, Ed, who helped us out with this, pointed out the Kemper Arena roof collapse in 79. Uh, the Hartford Civic Center had another collapse in the year before in 78. Uh, the Chaplain Towers in Miami that collapsed in 2021, they were built in that time in the late 70s and early 80s. So it just seems like it was a time where, you know, people were probably just rushing around trying to make money. Greed is always a factor, I think, in stuff like this and just trying to build, build, build. So, yeah, but I, I, I yeah, and there were it was a cascading chain of, of failures to, to to not pass the buck to actually stop and look at things. But you can really lay it the most at Duncan and Gillum's feet and that tribunal that Gillum went through found, like you said, that he was grossly negligent. But the way that they proved his negligence 
was that um, his firm had a policy that the engineer of record on any project had to verify all plans and all changes um, themselves before stamping it with approval. And the fact that he had failed to meet his own requirements, the tribunal said, that's, that's proof positive that you were negligent in this. And then they also said, apparently, his, he had a lot of pushback that he was giving. He would not accept responsibility. He deflected it at every turn. And it was so, his attitude about it was so cavalier, they said, that um, they cited it as an additional breach of professional obligations. It was that bad that like his, his refusal to accept responsibility was yet another piece of negligence that happened after the fact. Yeah. And, you know, if all this stuff sounds criminal, um, none of it rose to any kind of criminal proceeding. Uh, it was a civil um, legal quagmire. Uh, like we said, it was owned by Hallmark Cards, this building, and, and the ones around it. And there were 130-plus lawsuits. Uh, they didn't all get together and kind of go after them together, which, you know, sometimes can happen. Uh, they were fragmented. Some people went at it alone. Some people got together with, you know, a few other people. And there were 130 suits plus total, uh, seeking more than $3 billion in damages. Uh, the hotel cost $50 million to build. Um, to begin with, like the entire operation. And depending on the cases, uh, they always settled, um, sometimes kind of right up until they were supposed to go to trial. But they did settle all of them in in various ways. Uh, there was a woman named Winfred Witcher who got $500 because her face got cut. Um, there was a widow uh, and four kids of uh, Henry Botnan who got $600,000 um, different federal courts would come in or different judges would come in and basically say, all right, well, let's, let's get together on a large settlement. One ended up being um, $1,000 to basically anybody who could prove they were there, mm -hmm. period. Yeah, so like whether or not they were injured, if you could prove you were there, you would get 1000 bucks. Yeah, and I guess waive any right to, to sue after that point. Well, sure. But they ended up paying out something like $140 million. Most of it came from Hallmark. Yeah, I saw 150. Wow. Um, and that's in early 80s dollars, I believe, right? Yeah. I mean, not close to the three bill. No, 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 for sure. But they, they, Hallmark ended up paying out mostly because they were the ultimate owner of that hotel. And from what I saw, they were, there was a, a guy who was suing Hallmark, but Hallmark settled. And the lawyer had done all this extensive research and discovery and it basically found that Hallmark was really more culpable than, than anyone thought. And Hallmark, Hallmark settled. The thing never got published. Um, but I, I got the impression that's why Hallmark ended up spending the most money out of anybody um, to, to settle these claims. Um, and the whole, the whole experience just tore the town apart. Because there were people who wanted to get to the truth and wanted, you know, retribution. And apparently the business community really wanted to kind of sweep it under the rug for a lot of dis different reasons. But I think a lot of the boosters were like, this is a black eye on the city, I saw it described as. And the Kansas City Star and the Kansas City Times said, no, 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 we're going to report on this, even in the face of community um, pushback, I guess. And they won uh, Pulitzers for their reporting, for local reporting. Um, because they 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 got to the bottom of what actually happened. 
Yeah, there was a guy, um, like you said, there was a news crew on the scene anyway for the tea dance. Mm -hmm. And this cameraman was filming a lot of the aftermath, and he had people there that were victims that were coming up trying to, like, rip his camera away and start a fight with the guy saying he shouldn't be shooting that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but people came to his defense uh, in the moment. Um, what I don't get is how, I mean, I know Hallmark ultimately will pay because they were the parent company, but how did someone say they were more culpable than when it's really obvious that it was a design change that was rubber stamped by this uh, design firm? The like, what did Hallmark, it's not like they ran that up the, the, the greeting card chain and they said, yeah, let's do that. This is the impression I have, that the whole thing was fast and loose and cut in corners was in part because Hallmark or the subsidiary Hallmark owned that owned the hotel was cheaping out. And one of the one piece of evidence I saw that kind of puts that together is was from Gillum, who one of his defenses was I asked for on-site inspectors at the metal fabricators, at the job site, everywhere. And Hallmark wouldn't shell out the extra money to to make that happen. Had there been an inspector on site, then this would have never happened, kind of thing. Hmm. So, um, I one of I think one of the reasons why the business community wanted to sweep it under the rug is Hallmark is the it was at least at the time the far and away the largest employer in Kansas City, very much beloved. A lot of people owed their livelihood to Hallmark. Their their kids went to college because of Hallmark. It was a a really well regarded company, and apparently that that was that facade or whatever that image was attacked by the Times and the Star, and that was one reason why some, right. some people were so against that reporting because. Even if you didn't have anything to hide, but you still had an affinity for Hallmark because they were your employer, you might right. you might be upset at the news for reporting that kind of thing even. Sure. Um, a lot of the uh, many millions of dollars were earmarked for charities uh, that Hallmark donated to as, as part of these plea deals. Hyatt actually sued for $4 million, uh, but not Hallmark. They sued uh, the design firm. They sued 12 different parties, including the design firm the GC, the steel manufacturer. I could not find out what happened with those lawsuits, mm -hmm. which was really frustrating, but there were there were lawsuits all over the place. Yeah, it was a mess. and As you would expect. And like I said, this, this shadow hung over the entire city for a decade. Apparently, it came at a really terrible time because the city had just gone through a burst of prosperity, I think. And this, this hotel was kind of a symbol of that. And so it kind of really shook the foundations of this kind of exuberant Kansas City. Like, you know how, like, when you're, the more excited you are, the more happy you are, the harder you fall when something un comes along and just completely undermines that? Yeah. I, I get the impression that that was kind of what happened to Kansas City, and it took a, a long time for it to recover. It wasn't until 2008 that they even managed to erect a memorial because apparently there were so many people who didn't want to think about it or talk about it or memorialize it. But somebody, uh, some of the survivors' family or some of the victims' families uh, got together and, and created a memorial at a park just a block or so away. And Hallmark kicked in $25,000. That's right, uh, to build the memorial itself. Um, it is still there. The Hyatt Regency is. And those that atrium is still there. And the walkway on the second floor is still there. Of course, it's not held up by uh, – it's not suspended – it is held from underneath uh, by columns, mm -hmm. and obvious. And you know, I mentioned the PTSD 
uh, for first responders. That was a, a big push after this. And then also just, you know, uh, a general tightening up of, of, and this wasn't just in Kansas City. This was an international incident. So oh, yeah. it, it really uh, shook up the industry as far as how fast and loose things were going overall. Yeah, I know the ASCE, the American Society of Civil Engineers, came out and said, 100% unambiguously, if you are the engineer of record, you have to verify every single change or you are completely responsible for anything that happens as a result of that. It's on you. Like, just want to make sure we're clear about that. And that, yeah. was a, that was a change that came directly from that and from Gillum himself. Well, the buck has to stop with somebody. It was a situation where everybody was finger pointing. And when, when you can point to a single uh, decision that that caused this and not like well it was sort of this and this and this right uh like th these things had had they not even had that tea dance uh eventually they would have collapsed they just weren't built correctly yeah it's uh it's nuts i saw that even the original design wouldn't have met code for holding up um people not wouldn't have reached those kilonewtons that it needed you got anything else no i got nothing else uh Big shout out to the people of Kansas City. Uh, yeah. I hope to do a show there one day. We did go to Lawrence, Kansas, and St. Louis mm -hmm. in the general area, but uh, we have not hit Kansas City yet, so we'll, we'll do that one day. Yes, one day we will for sure. Uh, and since Chuck just promised Kansas City we're going to come to a show, of course, he unlocked listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this oh, just something a little lighter. I think we could use it. Yeah. Because uh, we inadvertently, well, I'll just read it. Hey, guys, been listening to the show for about six years. Uh, my first time writing in to highlight an ongoing mistake that is nonetheless hilarious. And I assume completely unintentional. Uh, during the 22 Halloween episode, Josh voiced one of the great characters in English literature, Meagle, <laughs> in the Toll House. But in subsequent episodes, when you guys, namely Chuck, tries to get Josh to do the voice, he refers to him as Smeagol. Smeagol, of course, is the hobbit from The Lord of the Rings, who's corrupted by the One Ring and eventually transformed into Gollum. After hearing this, I went back and re-listened <laughs> to the 2022 Halloween episode again, and I can, sure, I can assure you that the Toll House is even better second time around, first. Mm -hmm. And now I can just imagine a mixture of Josh and Andy Serkis narrating the dialogue of Smeagol Gollum as the mm -hmm. Meagol character in question. Uh, I almost didn't want to write in because of this, uh, to make you aware of this hilarious error. Uh, <laughs> though I assume someone will eventually beat me to it, but not true. Uh, Josh Billsboro, you were the first to write in. We did get a couple of people that wrote in after you, though. That, first. Uh, that, yeah, you were firsties. Uh, and Josh is from Madison, Connecticut. Way to go, Josh. Thanks for that. Thanks to everybody who wrote in to say the same thing because it is pretty hilarious. Smeagol. Maybe, maybe that's why my um, Meagle's been off. I've been accidentally doing Smeagol. <laughs> Probably so. Well, we'll get to the bottom of that, everybody. I promise Meagle will be back someday. Someday. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us like Josh at all did, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful. 
because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.